Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Today we're coming to you in one of several geophysics labs at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I'm wearing these safety glasses because we're in a little bit of a pressurized area and for, as a precaution uh, they asked me to wear these. Uh, this particular lab is the Dynamic Stress Stimulation Laboratory um, and scientists here at Los Alamos in this lab are investigating seismic waves for enhancing fluid flow in the earth. My guest today is Dr. Terry Wallace. He is the Principal Associate Director for Science, Technology, and Engineering here at LANL. Um, he uh, is responsible and coordinates activities of the four science and engineering directorates. And he's responsible for all basic science programs throughout the laboratory. Uh, Dr. Strong science credentials and a track record as an effective science manager. During the period of 2005 to June 2006, Dr. Wallace was the Associate Director of Strategic Research, which encompassed LANL's science program offices and the five line divisions that implemented those programs and supported LANL's nuclear weapons threat reduction and energy security missions. Dr. Wallace holds a PhD and master's degree in geophysics from the California Institute of Technology and a bachelor of, Sci and bachelor of science degrees in geophysics and mathematics from New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, uh, which is now uh, New Mexico Technology, New Mexico Tech. Um, and uh, he is the author and, and or co-author of more than 80 peer-reviewed publications on seismology, tectonics, including and tectonics, including ground-based nuclear explosion monitoring and forensic seismology. He also wrote a widely uh, used textbook on seismology. Uh, Dr. Wallace is a fellow of the American Geophysical Union (AGU), and in 1992 he received the AGU's Mac medal uh, and he has served as president of the Seismological Society of America, chairman of the incorporated institutions for research in seismology and authored the position paper for the American Geophysical Union on the verifi verifiability of a comprehensive test ban treaty. So I say all that to say that he is very well versed on what we're going to talk about today which is um, energy and how it relates to geophysics and the mission here at the lab and a lot of other things. Dr. Wallace, thank you for being on the program. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great, and you, you hit it right on the, uh, the nail right on the head. We're in a geophysics lab, and I'm particularly uh, happy to be doing this interview from this, uh, this spot because it, uh, to me, typifies uh, what we're trying to do at Los Alamos, and that is we have some extremely strong capabilities in different science areas and these capabilities are uh, designed so that we can serve the emerging uh, national need and that national need we can't necessarily predict we're going to do the science and the uh, engineering that the nation is going to ask us to do but we must maintain a really strong capability to be poised to do that and uh, geophysics is a perfect example of that. It serves all our missions. It serves uh, the mission associated with maintaining the nuclear uh, reliability of the nuclear stockpile. Uh, it, it does in terms of understanding what other countries are doing in terms of their weapons testing. It's a, 
at the leading edge of understanding uh, our own energy resources. Uh, it's very important in understanding um, how we're going to remediate something from an environmental perspective. When we look out in the next 25 years, the tremendous challenge this nation has, both in energy and in resources like water and clean air, geophysics is at the forefront of that. And so having a really strong capability uh, in geophysics at Los Alamos is an example of uh, you know, what we're trying to do or a design uh, over time for the laboratory. Uh, and so we're in a laboratory right now which is doing some very cutting edge research for understanding how fluids flow in, in rock. And clearly that's important for understanding recovery of fossil fuels, but also it's equally important for us to understand transport of uh, materials be us trying to put CO2 underground to sequester it, to understanding how our water in Los Alamos moves down towards the Rio Grande, uh, being able to address issues about contamination for Buckman Field, um, all these kinds of things. And this is laboratory basic science. We take that, we apply it to the mission and be able to look forward. Uh, Dr. Wallace, does this, this kind of research help in um, coming up with ways to alert the public to be aware when, for example, I think you and I did a program a few years ago after the big tsunami hit, right. uh, and those people weren't, they did, just did not have the infrastructure to, to know what was, what was coming at them. Does this, the science that you all are doing, um, w would that help uh, around the world, being able to let people know when something's coming after well, I think, that, I think that it's fair to say that Los Alamos is at the absolute leading edge of, of part of the science which we call nonlinear dynamics. And um, although, you know, the tsunami came and there was a very large earthquake, the largest we've ever had in recorded history, and sent the tsunami out, uh, there was an infrastructure problem. Um, you know, you could have this big earthquake, but how could you warn people a half hour, an hour before that came? And I think that we've made great progress to it. But an equal part to that and the, where this research plays is, how does that earthquake actually work? And so, you know, for 100 years, that's about how long seismology has really been around, we've been kind of uh, trying to design buildings that can withstand an earthquake. And we've had a holy grail, can we do a prediction of an earthquake? But we've never been very successful at that. The research has led us to understand how rocks behave in ways that nobody else has looked at now. So if we can attack that problem of understanding how that earthquake is going to happen, how the rocks are going to respond, so how big that earthquake is going to be, and other responses, we can do even better than warning people after it's already occurred. It could put good planning into the process. And instead of spending billions of dollars in infrastructure for designing buildings for an earthquake which may never come, um, we can uh, put those resources at a much more modest scale uh, for developing a true emergency uh, urban planning system. And so that's what I'm really excited. Now, those are, that's a decade, decades out, but that's what Los Alamos' research in this area is, is about. So this whole area, this whole set of laboratories, you know, has everything from how fluids move through rocks to the memory in rocks when they're shaken to um, how they actually fracture. And also, for example, if a terrorist country were to be testing a nuclear weapon, 
you w would your forensics be able to tell you that that's what it was and it wasn't an earthquake or something else? So that's a big part of what the mission we've had at Los Alamos um, is always to be able to support the nation's what we call the national technical means for be able to assess what somebody else is doing. And our most recent example, of course, was October of 2006 when the Koreans tested a nuclear device. And uh, it's really important that we understand that seismology really well so we can tell what they did. It turned out they had a relatively very small explosion. In fact, it was a blip. Most of us, we, we've had coal mine blast in New Mexico in the old days, the same size as the explosion that came off with the Korean test. What can we say about the seismic records that we see? And so this group feeds in with other groups at Los Alamos to be able to give us a good assessment. We learned it's inevitable. The Koreans had a fizzle. It didn't work the way they thought it would work. And uh, seismology was the one that told us that. And so it's, a, and it's the, having that core capability in these you know, researchers that are in this building with the researchers that are doing the global deployment with the researchers that understand how to analyze those signals together that gives us really strong capability at Los Alamos. Now, how does all this figure into, uh, you know, the whole world is trying to figure out the energy dilemma, and how does this all figure in? And so the energy dilemma is huge, and it's really easy for us to kind of, you know, localize it and say, well, you know, if I just use these new light bulbs, I could save 15% of the energy. And if everybody drove a Prius, we would use 12% gasoline, less gasoline those are irrelevant blips to the whole energy issue that we have in this. What we really have is a population issue. Population is growing at an exponential rate. And so if we look at the population at the beginning of the 1900s and we have a few billion, and we're up to more than six billion at the turn of the century, now we're well on our way to nine billion, every one of those people want to use energy to have a better quality of life. And quality of life can be measured by your energy consumption. And so we need to be able to look at this as a system. How are we going to allow more energy to all 9 billion people? It's not a Los Alamos issue or a U.S. issue alone. How do we put all that together? So we're going to have to have a very holistic thing in which we look at all the energy sources. But all the energy sources then need to be connected. We have an antiquated, inadequate transmission system. How do we store the energy? How can you make your home so that you're you know, less impacted to these things? And then finally, the environmental insult with energy use is extraordinary, whether it be CO2 gases uh, contributing to global warming or the Chinese burning coal that drops mercury in the state of Washington, or the acidification of the ocean, which kills phytoplankton, which is the main source of oxygen for us. All these things are a system, and you cannot look at it into one thing. What a national laboratory does really well is to look at the pieces and then present the system. So a decision maker in, the, in this country is going to have a trillion dollars to invest in energy. How can they make the right decisions you know, to, to spend those dollars wisely? There's going to be a science piece, a technology piece, a policy piece. And Los Alamos puts those systems together, and we try to provide the support so that they can make wise decisions about how to invest those resources. And that's what our energy portfolio is about. It makes it seem as if Los Alamos National Laboratory, the things that it needs to do and that it's doing are, are really... Um, 
as if not more critical than they were 60 years ago to this nation and its future. Uh, I absolutely believe that. I think that the, um, it's easy to, uh, to uh, look after a month and a half of dropping oil prices to think, thank God I'm not paying $4 a barrel, I mean $4 a gallon for gas now, I'm only paying $2.50. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the energy crisis, or whatever you want to call that, is the biggest challenge we've ever faced as a human race. And it's not going away. We don't have a solution. And we can talk about lots of different things. We can talk about how do we make things so we have less CO2 gases. We can't get there because we need the energy. We can talk about the fact that we have a stalled economy. There's only two things that will make our economy recover. Access to energy and innovation. And those are intimately coupled. And so this challenge is extraordinary, it's holistic, and uh, Los Alamos' role is to serve the nation and be able to provide solutions to that. And so how we look at this as a system and bringing fundamental rock physics into understanding for petroleum production and how we can then capture the CO2 gas and re-sequester it, all those things have to be looked at together. And that's what Los Alamos does well, and that's uh, why we have national laboratories. And so some of the projects that, that um, the scientists here are working on now, can you talk a little sure. bit about those? So, you know, what we look at today is that, the, for example, everybody wants to make a near immediate impact on uh, how we produce CO2. And uh, so a strong push, especially in the last election, to talk about renewables. And renewables for our total power production in the U.S. is only a few percent. It's maybe 3%, and that's counting hydro. Um, nuclear is 20%, coal is 50%, and, you know, and it produces a lot of CO2. How do we make that 3% wedge grow to 20%? It's an important problem for the nation, but it's not through wanting to do this for the last 15 years. There's just a lot of impediments to it. And the biggest impediment, of course, is that we could put wind generators everywhere. They just don't work when it's not windy. So how do we store that energy? The second thing is if it's really windy, we have to put that electricity in a line, but nobody may want to use it. So we overtax an antiquated transmission system. So Los Alamos' research efforts, for example, in this are how do we develop a new generation storage? And so I can imagine everybody will have a, uh, something that looks like a uh, cooler, you know, a a, a water cooler at your house that is an energy storage device in the future so when we produce too much power we can store it and how do we figure out how to balance the antiquated transmission system so that for a modest investment we can put this renewable and put it up to 20%. I think we can get there but it have to invest in those two areas. Those are the two stumbling blocks. It's not about the number of windmills, it's not about the number of solar panels. It's about how we balance those loads, and that's uh, the sweet spot for what Los Alamos works on, and that's one of the areas we're working. The other one, of course, is that, you know, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere does contribute to global warming. I think it's, we can't tell you what what the climate's going to look like anywhere in 2050. We can give you some ideas, but they really are true projections. But we know it is impacting our climate, and we know that the uh, collateral damage associated with that, the acidification of the oceans, uh, the dropping of soot on glaciers, all these things have to be addressed. And so we have a considerable um, talent invested in trying to understand how do we remove CO2. Can we make coal cleaner? Because we can't turn off coal today and still have power. Can, well, if we capture that CO2, 
Can we put it underground and be sure that it's going to stay there? Nature's done a great job of doing this. All the limestone that you see around, Carlsbad Caverns, those, that's all captured CO2 that nature's figured out how to do that. So we know we can, nature can do it. So we can do it too if we can figure the magic of the, uh, of the physics to be able to do that process. And so those are the couple of the projects we're working on. And um, w as you work on these, are, are you um, in touch with people in Congress that they realize the, the critical mission that you guys are doing uh, above and beyond, you know, the weapons mission uh, for the good of our country and the good of the globe? So I think, I think that there's a lot of people that in Congress uh, do recognize the importance of not just Los Alamos, but the national laboratories and, and working these uh, these problems. We are in a major transition, Carol, and I, I you know, we were, uh, we've had a waxing and waning mission in nuclear weapons since the very beginning. If you would go back to the mid-50s, you know, everybody thought we had plenty of nuclear weapons and they were way too big, so we looked at, you know, Los Alamos had Project Rover, which was, could we make nuclear rocket engines? Los Alamos had a couple strange love projects at the same time. We, you know, we, we designed and were prepared to build a nuclear-powered aircraft which is a pretty good idea. It could stay up forever, but you really don't want to land it. You certainly wouldn't want to crash it. But, I mean, we had lots of other missions through this whole time, and they've waxed and waned. But the nuclear deterrent will always be a mission for Los Alamos, but it's going to be a much smaller piece as we move forward. The role of nuclear weapons in our national security is going to is going to be different. We've had a hard time articulating it since the, the fall of the Iron Curtain, but it'll be some role. But... How do we become this laboratory that many people can ask to solve this problem? So we know how to respond perfectly when the Department of Energy asks us to do something. That's our job. But the science challenges that come before us today are being asked by the Department of Homeland Security or an intelligence agency or the Department of Defense. How do they ask us to do that work and DOE agrees that we should do that work. That's the challenges we have coming forward. So I think Congress recognizes all those things, um, and I, have, I see an optimistic future, but that governance issue of who gets to assign our mission is going to be the big challenge for us in the next few years. Do you think that it will be... Uh there will be resolutions? Oh, I, I think so. I think these problems are too pressing, and what we have to offer the nation, and the nation knows that, is too great not to solve these issues. But I have confidence that uh, our government also, you know, operates uh, ponderously as they make these transitions. Mm -hmm. So I, I can't tell you that, you know, tomorrow um, we'll, everybody will be saying, oh, it's all solved. It's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. And clearly, there are people for and against nuclear weapons and so forth, but everybody wants these, this energy crisis right. under control. It affects every single person uh, in this country and in this world, so it is a critical mission that, that Congress just has to fund and has to back uh, enthusiastically. And, and certainly Congress, Congress has recognized this, and so we've had energy crisis before. Nothing like what we're looking at today, but we recognize with the first oil embargo in the early 70s that, uh, you know, we had, we had basically paid a debt by importing a lot of oil and suddenly we had a, a blip in the economy that caused us a significant depression. And then in the Carter administration, they recognized the same thing as we had the second one. They invested a huge amount in energy, but not thinking about it as a holistic enterprise. And so we spent 40 plus billion dollars in 1978 
dollars, you know, to do an energy transition, and it largely didn't accomplish anything. We, our challenge now has grown. This balloon has grown to such a surge level that we have to address this today. And you're not going to solve it by having one group say, <clears throat> we can do everything with solar. Another group saying, we can all do it with nuclear. All of those have to be treated as a system. And I think that the nation is ready to address that. Um, but it's a long-term commitment. This is no 10-year solution or it's no Manhattan Project, which in three years you've solved this. This is, this is the challenge before mankind for the decade, mm -hmm. uh, for the century. Mm -hmm. I notice this time and, and when we've spoken in the past that you have such a great interest in geophysics and seismology and all these things. Where does that come from? Well, because um, I am a seismologist, oh, uh, you <laughs> know, I mean... you into the field? So, so um, you know, facetiously, I would tell you that, you know, there, there's points of perfection in nature, and geophysics kind of points to all these things that come together, and so there's a fascination with it. But the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, the natural systems that we see in Earth uh, are really the things that's fascinated me. I love physics, I love mathematics, but nature has figured out how to do almost everything we need to do. And a lot of that comes together in geophysics. Uh, some that won't, but I'll just use some examples. You know, the problem of making oxygen and carbon sequestration has already been solved because we've got plants. Photosynthesis is a perfect way to get rid of CO2. Nature figured out how to do that. If you went back 400 million years ago, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere was, was something like 10 to 20 times it is t today. But nature produced flowering plants, and suddenly the CO2 in the atmosphere dropped to almost zero. Now, what they did is it made bark. It sequestered all the CO2. And there were no bugs to take care of the bark. And so there's no CO2 in the atmosphere for 50 million years. And then nature figured out we need CO2. And so bugs bark evolved to eat the, eat, the, eat the bark, and we reached this equilibrium. And so that's an example. When we look at the Earth as a system, um, we have an incredible diversity of flora and fauna. And that's driven by energy from the sun and energy from the Earth's center, the heat flowing out. And there's a balance there that nature's figured out. The CO2 sequestration, making limestone. Nature's figured out how to do that. Ocean circulation, the amount of calories we consume as humans is largely controlled by ocean circulation. Nature's figured out how to distribute those things. And so when I look at a geophysicist or other natural scientist in this, um, it's that fascination that nature has perfected most of the things that we worry about today uh, quite well. And uh, I think that that's why geophysics held such a fascination to me. It's kind of the convergence of all those things together. And, uh, you know, um, it also... You grow up in Los Alamos, you get to be in the outdoors, and you get to see nature in a different way. You're not necessarily in an urban environment. Um, it, it creates its own sense of wonder. And uh, like I said, I'm the most fortunate person in the world to be able to live in an active, geologic, diverse environment and be able to come back and do that, and geophysics is a way to do it. Uh, in the introduction, I mentioned this widely used textbook. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Uh, so we wrote a textbook called Modern, Modern Global Seismology. And seismology really has become kind of a center for a lot of different kinds of geophysics. Uh, but for a long time, it was uh, sort of an obscure topic. And uh, 
um, people that had a textbook ad that had a very mathematical approach to it, or they were using textbooks that were written by people like Charles Richter from the Richter scale. And they didn't explain, you know, that, um, our approach to seismology. I was very fortunate to have been able to write kind of the, the textbook at the revolution where it became much more uh, common for seismology to be taught. And it was a wonderful experience. Whenever you get to share how you look at the world, which is what a textbook is, it's an awful lot of fun. Um, you know, to also be honest, once we did that, then I was really interested in explaining other things in science instead of seismology, but uh, that all works out too. Great. We have just a couple of minutes left, uh, Dr. Wallace. Could you um, maybe address high school students or students in college that haven't decided on a major uh, and just talk a little bit about the importance of this field and, and, and the f maybe the fun or excitement about it? Well, I think that success in any field, and it doesn't matter whether it's science or not, you have to really have a passion for it. And so um, I think that we don't have as many go people going into science in general, and geophysics is one of those, that have a passion for it because they're not exposed to why it's so exciting and interesting. And uh, I think that uh, it's important for uh, us to make sure that we do uh, provide that opportunity in, in uh, K through 12 education to understand, wow, there is a full world of discovery that's out there. Because once a person becomes passionate, they don't have to have an IQ of 150. And they have to be passionate about it to be able to make that discovery. And uh, I think that, again, natural science is a perfect place. And so geophysics is a part of that. But the Earth around us is so intimate in everything we do. If we could, you know, if we could relate that to everything that we have. And energy is a great topic, by the way. And so I would love to see... You know, and it will become a, a fact that uh, energy will be the integrator in our science curriculums in the future because it's so it's so important and, and based on this, and the future is wide open in that. Um, I think that uh, you know we go through different cycles in the country in which we look for what our what as a, a country we're we're interested in. Innovation is always driven, us, and science will be at the front edge of that again. And I think that natural science and geophysics is a is a great area to go. And I think that it, uh, solving problems for humanity is, is, a, is a pretty good thing to get passionate around. Well said. Dr. Wallace, thank you so very much for being on thank the program. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all for viewing, and we'll see you again next time on Behind the White Coat, Conversations with Los Alamos Scientists. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.